Welcome to Heartbeat Podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Bright, along with my co-host, Joy Stanford. We aim to change the hearts of corporate America. Each week, you'll hear us discuss politics, business, the voice of the black woman, and how our voices are needed in today's world. We bring a myriad of guests on. We love to highlight and promote brown and black people. And our focus is on the ecosystems that are necessary to change corporate America. Through these conversations, you will get a deeper understanding of what is necessary for change. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat Radio and Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Bright. I was giving a lot of thought about how to kick this show off today, uh, mostly because I hope you all are as pissed off as I am about what is going on in our country. You know, guns and corporations have more rights than women and girls today. Pro-life, this notion of pro-life is about just controlling women um, because we can't even provide adequate food shelter and education to our kids in this country. I wanted to have a conversation about this tonight and I'm excited about um, who the guests are that are joining us this evening. Uh, I invited uh, on to our first half of the show, uh, two of our elected officials who um, work in Washington and Olympia on behalf of Washington State. And so I'm excited uh, to introduce uh, Senator Patty Cooter out of the 48th Legislative District works. Uh, she's done some work around guns. <laughs> uh, and then also um, Representative Tina Orwall. She is out of the 33rd District. Uh, Joy is not with me tonight. So let's bring in uh, both of our elected representatives for the first half of the show here. Let's welcome them both in. Hi, Hi. Yes, welcome back. Senator Cooter has been on. This is your third or fourth time coming on, so I appreciate that you're always willing to come on and educate and update our community and have a conversation about uh, what's going on. And Representative Orwell, it's nice to meet you. I've never met you, so I appreciate it. I know you're in another time zone right now, so thank you for stepping into this conversation tonight. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, we, we just want to hear from our elected officials. You know, this one election did this, right? Unleashed all of this back in 2016. And so when we talk about why it's so important for people to vote um, and why we work on trying to activate communities that don't get out and vote, the consequences of all of that are what we're seeing today. Um, Let me just start with, I just want to hear from both of you personally, you're both women. Um, And so as women in this country, how are you feeling um, about what's going on and uh, encompass with that you're carrying a responsibility to serve the public to help us address these issues. I'll just give open it up for both of you to just talk about how you're doing personally. Tina, you want to start? Well, you know, when the news came out, and of course we were all forewarned, but uh, Senator Cooter and I were at an event uh, in Colorado, and it was a bipartisan event and we were in a room full of women and it hit me so hard. I, I, everything I could do to hold back the tears. I mean, I still feel very emotional even thinking or talking about it. You know, one of the things we shared is, you know, 
we both have daughters and this is a time where our daughters will have fewer rights than we had. And it's just, um, it's a very difficult time in our country. And I know we worried about this last session. We did a lot of things in the legislature to really try to help and support women that maybe need to come from other states. Um, it's, it's a devastating time. You know, you think of all the progress we made over a hundred years, all the steps we've taken, and it, it feels like we got pushed down the steps feels like so much progress has been lost. Indeed it has. <laughs> Senator Cooter, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with Representative Orwell um, and Cindy, it's always good to be with you, but this is a, a particularly devastating decision uh, by the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, it is um, uh, going to hurt women in innumerable ways. Uh, the lack of bodily autonomy, um, you know, the economic repercussions of this, uh, the potential for criminal penalties. It's almost like it's open season on women. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very angry about it. And I would like to see us. Um, in fact, I was telling Rep Orwell at the time, I said, I think we need to amend our constitution. Uh, and then I looked in the paper and saw that uh, the governor has already indicated that too. But that is a very big lift because it'll take two thirds of the House and the Senate to first approve that and then it would go to the voters. But this is where the voters, and you talked about this too, Cindy, about how elections have consequences. And this is where the voters need to get engaged um, because this is not um, a democratic issue. This is a woman's issue. And it's also a man's issue in some respects too. And you know what? There are a lot of, of folks on the other side of the aisle that support the right to choose, and they need to make their voices heard in their districts and make sure that their representatives and, and senators are um, in favor of amending our Constitution and making sure that this is a constitutional right here in Washington. What does it mean when you said uh, Governor Inslee has already uh, put forward an amendment to the Constitution? What can you do? You understand? Yeah. I don't understand. He, 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 um, I had mentioned that to, to Rep. Orwell, uh, like with, within, you know, an hour of learning of the decision. And the next day I read in the paper that he, that the governor is also proposing the need to amend our constitution. Uh, he can't uh, do that, obviously. That's not an, is this, yeah, this has to come from the legislature and then it would go to the people on a referendum for their approval. That's the only way you can amend the constitution in our state. It cannot, it can't happen by initiative. It's got to start in the legislature and then go to the people for, for approval. What are some of the conversations being had here in the state of Washington? I mean, we obviously all, you know, watch the news and we see the few states that are considered you know, I'll just put in quotations, safe uh, for women, but there's such a, uh, a ripple or a spiral effect over being that safe state. And so I guess, you know, one of my questions is, you know, do we as a blue state um, sit at risk in any way from any of the other red states because we are protecting women, because we are doing things around gun laws? Like, are we at risk by these red states? And if so, what is it that they can act, that they can do to us? I guess my, that's my first question. And my second question is, um, what about, you know, the when people come into our state, and maybe we should talk about this. I've seen these memes around camping, right? People come camp here for a few days. Are we, do we have protections in place to give immunity to, 
either families who are trying to help these women or doctors who are trying to help the women? What does that look like here in our state? You know, that's a great question. And we started thinking about this last session and we started thinking about the women, right? And how do we support the women like in Idaho? And we set uh, funding aside to pay for travel and hotel and healthcare. But I think you're right. I think there's a dialogue right now about because of the technology and tracking of women's phones that there actually could be repercussions when they come to other states. And I don't know that we were last session prepared to address that. And I think there's there's a lot more issues that we need to try to figure out to really make sure our state is a safe haven uh, for those that come. Representative, yeah, do you, you work oh, in that space around women's health care? I'm sorry, was that for me? Yeah, I was um, just trying you to know, understand. Do you? You know, I, I do a lot on behavioral health. I'm a social worker and mental health professional. Um, okay. I was part of a lot of dialogues before next session, really, how do we support um, people that may come from Idaho, women seeking services. And so there was a lot of discussion about what we should be doing as a state. And I'm really proud because our budget leaders really did some great investments as a start. I don't think we're done, but I'm really proud that we did that last session. Senator Cooter, were you going to say something before I accidentally interrupted you? Oh, no, no worries. I was just going to point out that that we really don't know um, all of the consequences of this decision yet. Um, and something as simple as the um, the medical apps that help women who are pregnant uh, monitor their, um, you know, their 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 progress, et cetera. That I mean, we asked the question to the make one of the makers of these apps, you know, where does that data go? Can that data be subpoenaed? Um, you know, how are we going to be dealing with, say, for example, when someone has an ectopic pregnancy uh, or um, is in the middle of miscarrying? Um, the, these, these are unanswered questions right now. Uh, and I and we are going to, as Rep. Orwell um, correctly stated, we are going to be um, continuing to strengthen our laws to, to be a safe haven uh, for um, people seeking uh, abortions in our state, but we we don't know what's going to happen to them when they go back to their own states. And I think that's really um, disconcerting. It's worrying. It's why the Supreme Court is so disastrous because this is not the kind of um, um, medical procedure that should be delegated to the states to do on an ad hoc basis. We need a federal law around this. And I, I, you know, it's my sincere hope. Um, and I say it's a hope because of, of the makeup of our Congress right now uh, that we can get um, Roe v. Wade codified at the federal level. But until that happens, it's up to the states to do what we can. Uh, and it's also up to the, the people of the states to make sure that their elected officials are making um, sure that this is a right uh, that people have. And, and that's the only way we're going to force, I think, the federal government into acting. You know, um, Senator Cooter knows this, um, Representative Orwell. She, I'm sure she, I'm sure she gave you some editorial about 
who Cindy Bright is and the kind of questions Cindy can start to ask. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper because this is diverse community broadcasting. And a lot of our listeners here, not all, we have a pretty uh, white audience, but we do have a lot of the diverse community that pays attention and have increasingly been paying attention to this show now with all the chaos that's going on in the country. So I really want to make sure I touch on um, things that hit diverse community also. So taking the women's health issue and breaking it down, we all know, we, and I'm going to say as a black woman, know that brown and black people have the least access to healthcare, right? We know that um, if anybody's going to get targeted in this process, it will be our communities first. And so I guess my question is, you know, this is a, this is a woman's issue. Uh, it's a, it's even more um, exaggerated uh, in brown and black community for us as women. And the, let me say the lack of, or the very incremental um, investment into equity in this state and other states. I know that that's happening, uh, but it's happening at a very slow pace, if you will. And so I guess my question is, you know, I read the papers too, and I saw the state now has $1.4 billion more revenue that has come into the state and decisions are going to be made about that. Will any of that money, do you believe, will get equitably distributed into our community, into brown and black community, to help us with the health care and the access to it? Um, and I guess that's part A of the question and part B is like, what do we do for our brothers and sisters outside of the state that don't have the luxury of sitting in front of two senators and asking this question to them. Like, what do people do? Will that happen? Do you have any insight to that? Well, you know, I think that there, you know, I represent the 33rd legislative district and it's culturally very rich. I think the, uh, Kent School District has 140 languages spoken. And so a high priority for me is language access in the schools. It is addressing health disparities. Um, my district also has a airport and it has further impact on communities of color because of air quality issues. And so I do think, you know, we should be investing not only in the healthcare, but housing and affordable housing. And um, you know, I've done a lot of work around foreclosure prevention and really making sure we're outreaching to communities of color who, who are often more impacted also on housing issues in foreclosure. So I would love to see the investments. I can tell you last session when we were looking at supporting small businesses impacted by um, COVID and the shutdown of the community, we needed to look at the smaller businesses and um, businesses owned by communities of color uh, women-owned businesses because they were hardest impacted and they had the fewest resources or access to resources at the federal level. So I think everything we do needs to be with an equity and social justice lens. And I would say for that funding, whether it's healthcare, housing, um, we need to really look carefully and invest that um, back to communities that really need those dollars. Senator Curdy, you do some work around uh, gun control and Washington State, correct? You've done some work on some bills uh, to address that. Can you talk to us about some of the work that you've done in that space? Certainly. Um, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of work in, in the area of, of gun safety measures in the state. It's an it's a interest that I've had for long before I got into uh, the legislature. 
uh, and um, really was alarmed at, at how easy it is to gain access to uh, a weapon in our country. And of course, that was, you know, when Columbine happened, um, there was, uh, you know, shock across the country. There was outrage. I remember having to talk to my children who were very young at the time um, because it was everywhere. Um, but then there was no action really to speak of. I mean, they had the uh, the federal assault weapons ban uh, that they allowed to lapse, um, which really shows the, the power of the NRA lobbying. Uh, and um, that they could actually let lapse such a common sense measure that was proven effective at reducing mass shooting events around our, our country. And so I have done um, several bills that I've either been the prime sponsor or the co-sponsor of. Uh, and um, this last session, we passed um, a ban on high capacity magazines. We restricted ghost guns. Um, we banned bump stocks before. We have, you know, by initiative, we have the red flag laws, right? The extreme risk protection order, uh, and um, and we've done more. I have a I had a bill that um, temporarily restricted access to weapons for those on an involuntary treatment hold. Um, you, you know, and I also have the bill to to ban assault weapons in our state, and that has been introduced um, several years in a row. And uh, I have gotten a commitment that it will be heard this year, uh, this next session, because I think that that's, that's to me, that is such a common sense uh, measure that we can take. And I'm hearing it at the doors. When I'm knocking on doors, people are telling me that they are concerned about uh, gun violence, which, of course, did spike uh, during COVID. And we've been seeing it go up and up. And now we have more guns in our country than people. Um, mm -hmm. No, and apparently my work has been noticed by those in, in the gun lobby uh, because they've been very aggressive on me, but it's not going to deter me. And it won't deter people like Rep Orwell or others who understand that lives come before guns. You know, that that the fact that it is in the Constitution, it, it does mean it's a constitutional right, but that doesn't, doesn't mean it can't have common sense restrictions placed on it. Uh, and we have done that to, for example, the First Amendment has restrictions on it, and so can the Second Amendment. Now, there was a Supreme Court decision that, that came out that said, essentially, you can conceal carry anywhere. Um, and, you know, we can debate the wisdom of that or the lack thereof from my perspective. Uh, but again, it all goes back to elections have consequences. And that one election put those three justices on the bench that allowed for this decision um, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So, you know, we, we are going to continue working on, on uh, gun safety measures here in Washington state. We've been a leader. Uh, we still can do more. We've only been rated a B, we got a B grade, um, but we were at a D before. So I figure that's moving in the right direction. But, you know, um, I'm unswayed by these arguments that mass shootings are 1% of all gun shootings. So what? If, if you're in that 1%, that doesn't matter to you. If that's your child in a school that gets shot to death, that's no comfort to you that it's only 1% of, of all shootings. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a gun culture in our country that seems to control everything. And there's a very strong group of um, uh, people who want gun safety measures, and it's growing. I'm wearing orange because that's the color of... of um, 
you know, the gun alliance, the gun responsibility alliances, um, efforts to, to reduce gun violence in our state and in the country. So we can do this. We just, we just need to have more people who are willing to put up with the, you know, the gun lobby and stand up to the gun lobby and make it happen. And are you personally being threatened by these folks because you have taken the stance and you are moving this forward? Yeah, you know, they, they walk a real fine line. They know just where to, you know, what to say. I mean, they've talked about where I live and things like that. And I certainly have gotten some very nasty and vulgar, you know, emails and social media posts and things like that. Um, but again, it, it isn't going to deter me. And I mean, they, you know, as I told one person, you know, they picked on the wrong person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do know that about you, Senator Cooter. <laughs> I do know that. You know, one of the other um, issues that is on the docket for Supreme Court Justice Review next year uh, is the affirmative action laws. Here in the state of Washington, I'm going to allow you guys to explain it to me because I, I know we have been trying to get... Um, it was I-200, Initiative 1000, and I know Governor Inslee has done some executive order to change that. So it would help us to know, to help me to understand what it is he's changed, like what's actually moving in that space now. And then with that decision that he's made, if the Supreme Court comes back and says um, this next year that we can no longer use race as a criteria for access into education, you know, we have a deeper problem because I know this from when I ran for office. I looked at those numbers back four years ago on where the money is actually going to for um, access to education and all. It's such a myth and just a line of BS that they have been feeding the public about how those numbers and what how people actually um, were being harmed by affirmative action. They weren't. This was just, in my words, this was an attempt to have more white folks take over um, the one point something percent of access that we had here in the state of Washington. It's my long babbling way of saying, what can you tell us about affirmative action in Washington state and what will we do to protect it um, with knowing that, um, what's his name? I was gonna use a cynical name for him, Clarence Thomas um, has signaled that they're gonna be looking at those things. So they're coming to take all those rights away also. Do you have a take on Governor Inslee's executive order that he signed about this? Well, I haven't seen it. Maybe Rep. Orwell has, um, but I can tell you that um, you know we it was uh, it was uh, an initiative uh, about twenty years ago that that prevented um, the state and, and local governments from from also looking at race in addition to other things when letting contracts. And once that initiative passed, we saw, you know, roughly, it was roughly 12 to 14% of the contracts at that time had been given to um, um, business owners of color and women, and that plummeted to 1%. And then it's kind of inched up to maybe around 3% today. So it clearly had an impact. We went in the wrong direction when we um, when we repealed affirmative action. And the thing about it is, it was completely misunderstood. Um, mm-hmm. Affirmative action is not picking someone solely because of their color. It's being allowed to to 
have that as part of the overall mix in, in determining where the contract is going to be let. And when you think about it logically, that makes sense because if you have, um, you know, a friend of mine, for example, went to the Colorado School of Mines and, and she was admitted, she had a, she had the same good, you know, GPA and all of that, maybe a little bit under what some of her male counterparts were, but it was already 95% male. And the school made a decision that they wanted to include more women. And she was one of the few that actually applied there. So they were allowed to consider her gender in giving her and letting her in, but she had to meet all of the admission standards. And that's the same thing for what we're talking about here. So it's just, it's fallacious to even talk about it as, as a problem, but it's been whipped up into a frothy frenzy that people think that it's just picking someone because, you know, who, who, who isn't qualified, all of that. I mean, it's, it's, it, we've lost the, 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 you know, battle in terms of the narrative, right? So now we have to go back and, re, and take a look at other things. So we created an office of equity in Washington. And I don't know if you know Dr. J, but she's an amazing person. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and she is doing really great work at trying to, um, uh, you know, bring um, equity and, and social justice to um, the yeah. BIPOC communities and, and, to, um, and to women, too. So I'm just, you know, we do need to invest more there, Cindy. We have more work to do. Yeah. I just pulled it up while you were talking to look what I was, what I had remembered reading. And so he, uh, Governor Inslee signed it in January of this year, an executive order that rescinds this uh, directive on how agencies are to implement Initiative 200. So I only brought that up tonight because that's on the docket for the Supreme Court next year. And without, um, and I know here in the state, we have been, we are technically more progressive uh, that's such a, a debatable topic, but people like me are grateful to be um, in the state of Washington right now as these uh, horrific um, outcomes from, again, one election and the importance of mobilizing people to get them out to vote. Now, we've just got a couple minutes left, and what, I what I'm asking this question and comment, because the it seems to me, so I don't have this based in any data, but it feels to me, even here in Washington state, the uptick on Republican people to unseat a lot of the Dems has escalated. And so that, you know, when we watched, you know, Cassidy yesterday testify about, you know, how far these folks will go, you know, are you both seeing that same pattern of a whole lot more Republican and I even hate to say the word Republican because these are really white supremacists that are out here trying to take back over um, our country and here in Washington state. Are you at all concerned about that? Uh, I know you both are running for re-election and we want to put your campaigns up. I think, Daniel, we have both of their websites to show before we end here. But are either of you concerned about this at all? Tina, you want to go first? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I think we all have a sense that it is going to be an intense campaign. And um, I think there is a lot more activity in a lot of our districts that probably um, are considered swing districts. And so, um, you know, I think there is going to be, it's going to be a really important year for people to get out and vote because I think, um, I think the Republican party has mobilized a lot of candidates and, and a lot of districts throughout the state. 
Senator Cooter. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it is a critical race this year. And um, and in terms of the, the question about white supremacy in general, I am concerned about that. I mean, there was an FBI report from about a decade ago saying that there was a large percentage of white supremacists who were going into law enforcement uh, and warning local governments about that in particular. And uh, Washington does have its share of uh, white supremacy organizations, and it's something that we have to be very mindful of. And I do think that the previous um, administration uh, sort of green-lighted it to come into the mainstream. And I think you're, you will see more and more people with those beliefs uh, running for office. And, you know, it's, it's never been more important to check the information that you hear and read uh, because there's a lot of disinformation out there. And I'm expecting there to be a, a fair amount uh, in these campaigns across the state. Senator Cooter and Representative Orwell, thank you. I told you it's going to go by so quick. I didn't talk to you guys for a long time. Look, you are both women in Olympia. Uh, I'm just going to put hashtag badass women in Olympia who are out here fighting this battle for all of us women, all of us here in the state of Washington. I want to personally thank you for the work you guys are all doing to help. And I'm encouraging our audience to have a look at their websites. Please share this video past this. This elections matter. And because we are all sitting here now at the receiving end of uh, putting a radical in office who should be locked up as of yet, um, these are the consequences. So we got to get out and vote, people. So um, thank you, Senator. Thank you, Representative Orwell, for coming on. We're going to take a quick station identification. In the second half of the show, we have Lisa Mannion waiting in the back room. She is the first woman, the first Asian American woman running for King County Prosecutor. We'll be right back. grateful to have uh, Senator Cooter and Representative Orwell on with us. I think it's important that we get to hear from our legislators and, um, you know, the people that we have representing our interests uh, now and to just ensure that we have the right people in our seats uh, to protect our interests right now. Um, it's a scary time and these midterm elections are a big deal and I can't emphasize it enough. I know uh, when I look at data around the state of Washington and who's voting and the demographics that are not voting, I think a lot of my audience, I look at my analytics and I see a lot of you are closer to my age. And I think we, for the most part, get it. But we've got to get messages out to our kids, uh, our their friends, you know, this next generation and get them to the polls. Because if we don't, um, it's just continuing to go backwards and backwards and backwards. And look, next up on the docket will be same-sex marriage. It'll be interracial marriage. You know, my son and I joked and I've talked about it because I'm like, I, I wonder where I will actually fit into this equation because if I showed my DNA, I'm going to be with the white folks. So it's just an interesting time to see how this is all shaking itself out. Look, we started a little bit with Senator Cooter on 
gun control and the work she's doing at Washington State, we now have an opportunity to hear from our first female, first uh, Asian American woman who was running uh, for the King County prosecutor seat vacated by Dan Satterberg, who is retiring. And so let's welcome in Lisa Mannion to Heartbeat uh, this evening. Hi, Cindy. It's so good to see you. Can you hear me okay? Pardon me? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Yeah, Mike is working. Excellent. Yes. I'm well, so glad to see you. I haven't seen you in a few years. So I was looking forward to um, seeing you. We want to hear about your campaign. Um, we want you to talk to our community just about your run for the prosecutor uh, position. And I'm just going to give you the floor to open it up so we can hear from you. Okay, great. I really appreciate that. It's so nice to be here on your show and so nice to be to have an opportunity to talk to your listeners. You know, um, just by way of background, you know, I have been in the prosecuting attorney's office for 27 years. I have dedicated my career to public service and to public safety. And as the chief of staff for the past 15 years, I oversee a workforce of nearly 600 employees and an annual budget of $80 million. And in this role, I've done some important work in reducing racial disproportionality in our criminal legal system, enhancing victim services, and reducing juvenile crime to an all-time low in King County through the use of really smart and effective diversion programs in partnership with our community. And that partnership is super important to me. You know, I get asked a lot about why I'm running for King County Prosecuting Attorney. And it's because, it's because I care about the work of the office, but more importantly, I also care about the impact of the work of the office. Our 600 employees, our reach goes far beyond the 2.2 million residents of King County. Because we are the largest county in the state, the work of our office generates really important case law and legal precedents that impact the entire state. I also care about the women and men who work in the office, who have dedicated their entire careers to public service and who are looking for proven and consistent leadership. And, you know, another reason I'm running is because I care about public safety. And I know that public safety is top of mind for a lot of folks in our community right now. And I have to tell you that my view of public safety is really informed and shaped by my lived experience. So I was born on an army hospital in South Korea to a Caucasian father and a Korean mother. And when I was an infant, my dad moved us to his home state of Kentucky. And, you know, there my mother, of course, was met with discrimination and racism. And my dad's mother, my grandmother, never approved of my parents' relationship because my mother wasn't white and because she didn't speak English as her first language. And so one day when I was about four years old, my grandmother got into an argument with my mother and she threw her out of the house with only the clothes she was wearing. And that was the last day that my brother and I saw her for 25 years. And so of course that experience shaped me. And it's also the experience that allows me to hold many truths at once. And so when I think about that experience, I know firsthand what it looks like when someone has been marginalized and no one is there to speak up for them. Of course, my brother and I experienced discrimination and racism, but he also experienced the disproportionate school discipline 
and the disproportionate law enforcement contact that so many young men of color experience. And I grew up afraid for his safety. I also learned a lot about forgiveness from that experience. So my grandmother who loved me and shaped me and taught me about hard work, she wasn't the sum of her worst mistake. Neither she nor my, nor my mother were castaways. So when I think about public safety, to me, it means there are a lot of truths that we hold together at once that work in concert with one another. Of course, we prosecute violent crime and sexual assault cases. Public safety also means that we are free of hate crimes born from discrimination, that we offer victim services that are culturally responsive, and that we respect our victims' desire for restorative and healing practices. It means that we give young people who commit stupid mistakes a second chance. It also means that we acknowledge and dismantle the racial disparities that are in our criminal legal system. And it also means that we get to incidents of crime and root causes, that people who need help and intervention and services are connected to the supports they need to reclaim their lives. So when I think about public safety and why I'm running for this office, all of those reasons are why I had to step up and put my name into the ring. Yeah, th thank you for giving us that personal um, story about, uh, and I actually can relate to a lot of what you were saying in terms of uh, coming from biracial family, biracial parents, um, what goes along with that whole issue. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think... You know, we in Washington State, I don't know if you caught any of what I was talking with Senator Cooter and Representative Warwall about, you know, we're at these inflection points when it comes to what is happening to people, when it comes to, in this particular conversation, I'm going to talk about diverse uh, community, what's happening to, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruling that came down, we all know that that has a disproportionate impact to BIPOC people. We all also all know that it is BIPOC people that are disproportionately prosecuted and jailed and um, policed. Um, and so I, I know you touched on a little bit of that as you were giving your intro about yourself, but what can you talk to us about with, you know, I heard you say, of course we prosecute, you know, violent crimes. We get that, but there is a whole other segment, I guess, of it, of crimes that are not violent and or, you know, how do you want to talk to our community about how you will address those type of issues around the extra policing that goes on in brown and black communities? How will you deal with those sorts of issues? Well, you know, it really begins with sharing data and sharing data with the community and studying the data and acknowledging and identifying the racial disparities. And it means how do we intentionally change those numbers um, to reduce racial disparity. And when you talk about like, um, I think part of your question touched on what about the other side of policing, the nonviolent crimes? You know, I really believe in the value of upstream diversion programs that really get to the heart of poor decision-making that offer people meaningful tools and opportunities as a way to um, one, climb out of poverty, to showcase talent, to make different choices, um, and to get to get healthy. 
And that means dealing with trauma and dealing with substance use disorder or mental health disorder. Um, but I really think that we have to partner with our community to be part of those important solutions. So I'm an absolute believer in the power of diversion. And as I mentioned, I mean, that's why we know that juvenile crime is the lowest it's ever been. That's not an accident. It's because of important organizations like Choose 180, um, CP, and others in our community who are working with young people. Everyone from Step Up who works with FERS, they're giving families and young people tools. Really important. What, um, and it's out of my sheer ignorance, um, what changes will you make? You have been uh, Dan Satterberg's chief of staff, um, which is essentially, I'm gonna, I'm not saying this to be offensive to him in any shape or form, but we all know the women do a lot of the stuff. And so I'm sure you carried a lot of things in that office and made a lot of things happen. And you now switching into the top seat, you know, what changes do you see are necessary now? Um, what, what do you see as necessary to change now? You, you've lived in this system for a long time. So admittedly, you've been in that, you know, role for a long time, in that office for a long time. Now you're taking a different lens potentially to what needs to be done. Can you talk to us about what your thoughts are about that? Of course, absolutely. And you're right, Cindy. I have been behind the scenes operationalizing every one of those really good reforms that has come out of the office in the past 15 years, the types of things that have earned us a national reputation of fair, just, and, and effective. Here's one thing that I would like to do differently. I would like to reimagine our mental health system. And I am specifically interested in revamping our involuntary treatment at court. Right now, it is an adversarial system where on one side of the table, I have prosecutors who are working with designated crisis responders to get someone help in a, um, in a secured setting. And I also have on the other side of the table, a public defender that is fighting for that person's release because their civil liberties are at stake. What I would really like to do is see if we can make that a therapeutic court where we have prosecutor, crisis responder, judge, and defense attorney working toward the same goal of giving that person help in the least restrictive alternatives possible. And the benefit of making it a therapeutic court is that we also get to tap our mental illness, drug dependency tax dollars, our mid-tax dollars to help pay for it because we know that our current system is taxed. There's not enough revenue or resources to meet the need. Um, I think that is an opportunity to create a safety net that our involuntary treatment at court should be and can be to offer people help before they decompensate, before they commit crime. That's one thing that I'd like to lead on. Another area that I'd like to lead on, I'm ready to make room at the table for new partners to help us craft solutions. We absolutely need the participation of our BIPOC and business communities. Not only can we learn from their lived experience, but we also need their good ideas, their leadership, and their trust. Um, and that is something that I feel like I can do because I have ties to the community, because of the work I've done in partnership with you and others at the Urban League, because of the type of work that I've done um, with Choose 180. You know, I'm so proud to be a co-founding partner of that organization. And I believe in the power of community. 
And I think that can people you talk about that that of course I can. So way back in 2011, um, Dan gave me this wonderful, amazing, beautiful assignment to go and work with community because he and Doug Wheeler had a conversation at a football game about how we were going to change the system. And Dan said, Lisa, make it happen. And I worked alongside Doug Wheeler and Donnie Griffin and Reverend Alan Belton and Steve Berry and Sarah Lewinton. And we worked to build those initial workshops. Our very first workshop was held in July in 2011. And we learned some things and we continued to build. But what we found was that we had a way with the community's help of reaching youth, of getting them to listen and inspiring them to take a deep look inside to want to do something better. And so what started as a pilot project ended up getting funded and growing. Um, I brought to the table a really amazing attorney, David Goodnight, who offered his services pro bono to help Choose 180 become the nonprofit that it is. And of course, under the leadership of Sean Good, that organization has become amazing and is really embedded in our community. And I have to say that Donnie Griffin, as one of the very first co-founding partners of Choose 180, had the brilliant idea of how do we embed this in our community so that Choose 180 lives separate and apart from the person leading the office. Um, so I'm really proud of that work because it was revolutionary at the time because the prosecuting attorney's office was intentional about sharing its power with community. And we listened more than we spoke. We can do more of that. Yeah, I, you know, um, I don't know much about um, your the King County Prosecutor's Office. Um, I, you know, heard obviously I'm an activist out in the communities. I've heard the criticisms around, you know, what's not working for BIPOC communities. So this is helpful for you to explain uh, the work, the things that you've engaged in, what's top of heart for you, and the things that you want to do different. And I think. I think our community is just um, eager to have some things done different. You know, the biggest, I think the biggest, I mean, I, you can correct me on this, but we've got this nasty homeless um, issue. And, you know, I watched a lot during the last election cycle, uh, the uh, I'll just call it the tug and pull over uh, folks who wanted to stop prosecuting people who were homeless um, folks who wanted to like help get them help. Um, what I, were you talking about those people too, when you talked to, and I shouldn't say it like that, those people, are you talking about our unhoused people? Um, when you talked about wanting to do things different and how will you help? You know, I've been trying to see what the mayor is doing now to try to help address the unhoused situation. Can you talk a little bit more to that? Yes, absolutely. I, I think like so many in our community, we want our unhoused to be safe. We want our unhoused to have housing. We want our unhoused to have community. And in the criminal legal system, I have to tell you, we have blunt tools. There is nothing magical about a jail cell or a prison cell that ends homelessness. Um, so really it goes to, again, root cause. We also know that people who are experiencing homelessness are disproportionately impacted as victims of crime. So they're not necessarily safe. 
by living in encampment, right? So how can we partner together, all of us leaders, the mayor, the executive, um, police chiefs throughout the region, um, service providers, prosecutors, so that we can ensure that people get the help that they need that allows them to lift out of their current circumstances, out of encampments and into safe housing. You know, one of my, I'll just say my um, wild ass thoughts about that topic around how do we deal with that is, you know what I do professionally, um, my equity work and so forth. And so I, you know, one of the issues that I'm seeing very uh, strong and prevalent, particularly uh, for brown and black people in business and corporate America is the forcing of them back into the office. And so there's a whole, there's an article of paper, I think it was yesterday or day before that I read, because Microsoft is one of the companies that has not in fact forced everybody back in the office. But there's a lot of, you know, there's some talk and I was like, you know, the the rub, I guess, with BIPOC folks coming back into the office is it's putting them back in these environments that are unsafe, unhealthy. So when we talk about mental health, what, what can we do or why can't we do something? This is maybe a legislator question to put, allow, let's require, can we take some of these buildings we have here? Just let people work from home, take some of these buildings and start converting them into ways that we can start to house people. Like we have so much real estate, particularly in Seattle, uh, that could be repurposed so that we can like, is that a conversation? Do you think that's happening? And can we think different like this to start to try to solve these problems um, to help them um, and to protect them? And I mean, it's helping and protecting them. Do you hear any conversations in that regard at all? I, I don't hear conversations related to privately owned businesses being turned into housing because I suspect those business owners, um, even if they are giant, giant companies, they still have bills to pay. And I'm not sure that government could afford the corporate rate of corporate office space converted to housing. I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect that it might be cost prohibitive. What I do hear you saying, and the thing that I'm really intrigued by is, how do we bring innovation to the table? How do we tap the business community and their innovations and their innovative spirit and their care and their concern and their focus on return on investment? How do we bring that voice to the table as we together work on solving this problem, homelessness, right? Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch on is that in the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, we have a future of work committee that is looking at a hybrid model of what it looks like to be in the office some days and working from home some days. And it looks different based on the unit within our office and what division you're in. Because you can't try a case, for example, from your living room, and sometimes you can't meet with victims in their home or in your own home. Um, but we are examining that because what we hear our employees calling for is balance. They want work-life balance, and they want flexibility, and they actually want us to trust them to do their work from home on some days. Um, and I think those conversations are super important. And I'm glad that we're having them at the prosecuting attorney's office. That's good. What was that comment? Can we put that comment back up? I didn't catch it. Oh, it's probably a tax write-off. Yeah. Thank you, Susan, for that comment. I'm sure 
you know, there's ways around all of this. So I, I get economics, um, but there is a cost to this, whether it's in the, the front end or the back end, there is a cost. And so it's a matter of where, you know, where do we want dollars? I mean, we need more revenue in the state. So, uh, and we have, I know this is not in your lane. This is in my lane. You know, when I'm talking about issues, like if we have companies that are not paying taxes and not, you know, contributing to revenue in the state, then we've got to start to solve those kind of problems because that is all a direct, directly related to people that are sleeping in the street. And it's directly related to what your office is called to do, right? You're um, in terms of the prosecution, the decision to prosecute or not of people. So yeah, Lisa, we just got a couple more minutes left and I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to say to listeners what you wanted them to know. I know you did a very impassioned opening statement about your candidacy for office. Maybe tell us about your campaign. Like I've seen you got some great endorsements. I saw you just got uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell, but you've got a lot of really uh, strong endorsements. Do you have an opponent in your race? How's your campaign going? Yeah, I, I do have a lot of really strong endorsements. I'm so proud to have over 150 endorsements from a mix of elected officials, community leaders, victims of crime, small business owners, civic leaders. I'm super proud of that. And in King County, we have 16 legislative districts. And so far, I have earned the endorsements of 15 of those 16 legislative district Dems. I'm only waiting for the 32nd to make its decision, and I have my fingers crossed. Um, I'm proud to have the endorsement of King County Executive Dow Constantine, former Governor Gary Locke, uh, Congresswoman Marilyn Strickland, um, about 20 state representatives and senators, and really um, big organizations like Cultures Connecting and the um, Washington State API Caucus and the National Women's Political Caucus. Really proud of those endorsements. Um, I do have an opponent. Um, he is presently the mayor of Federal Way. Um, I th- I feel that our my campaign is going really well. Um, I'm pleased that people are paying attention to this race. I'm pleased that people are engaging in important issues. I'm pleased that people are coming out in strong support of me because they share my values and they share my vision for the office. And they see an opportunity to take this office forward, not backward. And that's exactly what I intend to do, is to take this office forward. We still have important work to do. Um, There's important work um, to support the passage of I-940. And I just have to tell you, I'm really proud of the fact that I secured funding to form a public integrity unit within the prosecuting attorney's office that's dedicated to looking at officer-involved shootings and police use of force cases. And that is the reason why I intentionally declined to seek the endorsement of any police guilds, because that review would not appear fair and unbiased if I'm endorsed by police unions. So I just wanted to say that out front. Thank you. I want to emphasize to our listeners, um, this, you know, Lisa's election is another very important election. And her election is important because for many reasons, and I'm just things that a candidate won't say that a radio host can say is that she's got a Republican, uh, a Donald Trump laced, um, at least from what I read about him, how he thinks. And so we can't afford to let people look, we're all sitting here in this country right now with the stroke of one pen and one election. It could send us into places we don't 
want to have to see more of. So uh, I'm happy that you were able to come on and talk to people today, Lisa. We definitely want to see you elected uh, and see you in office. Um, We thank you for coming. Uh, Have we shown her website for her fundraising so we can make sure that we get donations in for her? My website is lisamanion.com and Lisa is L-E-E-S-A. Got it. It's on the screen. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much uh, for coming on, Lisa. We so appreciate um, that you have stepped up for this election and we are definitely rooting you on. And so um, we'll be following your campaign uh, and celebrating with you here soon. Uh, Thank Thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us this evening on Heartbeat. Um, I appreciate you all being here this evening. I appreciate the viewership, the comments, the questions that people ask. Um, It's important for us. Again, one election makes all the difference in the world. I look forward to seeing you guys all next week. I've got Representative Melanie Morgan coming up this next week. So have a good week, everybody. Bye.